0: This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly. And
1: I'm Carol Master. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. Another busy week here at Bloomberg, and over the next couple of hours, we'll bring you some of the news of the week and a lot that's in the magazine.
0: It's such an interesting issue of the magazine, Carol, because I feel like there's an underlying theme, and it's all about this Silicon Valley notion of move fast and break stuff. The disruptors. And the implications of taking that as your business model. It shows up in Tesla, it shows up in Juul, and what we're seeing is doesn't always work so great.
1: Right. Some of the consequences as a result of it. And I love the Tesla story in particular. It's the cover story, but it really gets into ethical questions that as we move into the self-driving universe, how comfortable are we that we want this, but probably to get to it, to full self-driving, we're going to lose some lives along the way. So what's the public's comfort level? With that,
0: and speaking of Silicon Valley, we've got a deep dive into Oracle, its adventures, shall we say, in the cloud, and also economics taking the and also economics taking center stage again. The risk of a global recession, what is it, and what are the risks of the recession closer to home?
1: Well, and right, and the U.S. and. And that's right, Jason, because the next U.S. recession, it's probably not going to be homegrown. It's going to be the result of some geopolitical factors, some big macro story that's out there around the globe. So, what will it be like, and what can the Fed do to prevent it?
0: First up, Carol, this week, Turkey launched airstrikes, fired artillery, and began a ground offensive against Kurdish fighters in northern Syria. This came after President Trump pulled U.S. troops out of the area. And that paved the way for an assault on forces that have long been allied with the United States. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham says the move will have dire consequences. The Kurds are the
2: ground
3: forces that destroyed the caliphate with American air power. Uh, We've abandoned them, that breaks my heart. I hope the president will change his mind and readjust his policy before it's too late.
1: Another busy news cycle this week, Jason, no doubt about it, and another geopolitical concern, and this one had to do with U.S. policy in Syria. I feel like this took a lot of folks in Washington, around the country, around the world by surprise.
0: Well, and that global element is especially important because it affects other countries and the U.S.'s relationship Mm -hmm. with other countries, none more so in many ways than Russia. Uh, Henry Meyer joins us from our Moscow bureau with some really good context. His story, his reporting on the terminal this week has been key to understanding everything that's going on here. So there in your backyard, Henry, help us understand Russia's place in all of this?
4: Well, Russia um, has been uh, looking to restore the influence it had in the Middle East, which was very strong during the Soviet era. Uh, that changed uh, dramatically uh, after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And really, uh, Putin, um, President Putin has uh, had immense success in this field of the uh, Intervention that Russia uh, did in Syria, um, starting a few years ago, in which they succeeded in uh, reversing the, the outcome of the civil war. Uh, President Assad was on the verge of being overthrown, and he's now um, firmly in power. This uh, has been a great success. But what is happening now is that the uh, the US uh, withdrawal, uh, from Syria is providing, uh, Russia an opportunity to, to really cement that uh, situation in Syria.
1: But it's not just about Syria. I think you write that Russia has since filled the vacuum from Syria to Libya, even luring Turkey into buying um, some military equipment. I mean, it's it's a much broader impact here, potentially, right, for Russia.
4: That's right. Uh, I mean, Syria, if you like, has been Russia's calling card in the Middle East. It's the reason why it's taken seriously now. Uh, but it's using that uh, to expand its role in, in, in many other countries In Libya, uh, there are um, increasing uh, reports that uh, Russia is uh, backing uh, the uh, uh, strongman in the east, General Haftar, and um, it uh, is developing relationships uh, with uh, traditional US allies like Saudi Arabia. President Putin is due to visit uh, Saudi Arabia shortly. You mentioned Turkey. That's very important. Uh, The decision by Turkey to defy US pressure and to go ahead with buying the S-400 missile defense system, uh, it could be a turning point, actually for that country's relationship with the West and with Russia. And so, what is the most likely next
0: move for Russia? You talked about uh, President Putin visiting Saudi Arabia. Obviously, that neighborhood, as it were, has become very complicated. As you described, what might Russia and Moscow do next?
4: Well, their first priority uh, is to try and use the current situation to its advantage in Syria. Uh, So it's uh, trying to engineer a solution involving President Assad, the Kurds, and Turkey, uh, which would allow uh, Assad to essentially reclaim control of most of the the Kurdish area. Um, And then secondly, um, it's clearly uh, going to be looking for uh, cooperation from Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia uh, and others, in reconstruction Uh, or Syria. Uh, It it has very ambitious goals in terms of uh, remaking its relationships uh, with all the countries in the region. Russia has a very specific uh, role in the sense that it keeps ties with all of the different countries, uh, mutual enemies. It's quite unique in that way. And that's Henry Meyer joining
0: us from Moscow. And Carol, I thought that was so interesting, in part because we've obviously been looking at this through a very us focus lens, but Russia is a major player in all of this. Well,
1: especially when if we're creating vacuums in an area like the Middle East, which is so unsettled, it does provide an opportunity for Russia to fill that. And you do wonder about the consequences uh, in the future as a result of that. This is an important story. The story of Juul is not unlike that of so many esteemed Silicon Valley tech startups. It moved fast. It disrupted an established industry. We're talking about the cigarette
3: business.
0: That's right. And it has found itself in the middle of probably one of the biggest public health controversies Mm -hmm. we've seen in quite some time. Lauren Eder joins us from L.A. She is the co-author of one of the really most compelling reads in the magazine this week. It's all about Jewel. I learned a ton from this story. Lauren, take us back to the beginning because the origins of this company are fascinating.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So like many other Silicon Valley companies, this one started at Stanford University. Uh, The two founders of the company were uh, graduate students studying at the business school and they were smokers. And they were sharing smokes um, out back and decided that, wow, this is a very outmoded product and maybe we can innovate on this. So that's what they set out to do. Uh, They did a lot of research. They launched their very first version of an e-cigarette at a time when There wasn't too much competition on the market so they basically innovated in the cigarette uh, space and launched what became the most popular e-cigarette in the world
1: all right but it wasn't so easy right because at first I think the the initial device maybe didn't work so well it was hard getting investor money too initially
5: yeah yeah you know it's interesting because at the time when they were seeking money this is circa 2005 to 2010 when they were really starting to they have their prototype they want to start launching it and they kind of got the call Cold shoulder from Silicon Valley investors originally. This is considered, the tobacco industry is kind of considered to be one of the sin industries. And Silicon Valley really kind of shunned and shunned those sin industries. So they originally had a very tough time getting some funding, but that All changed, of course, a little bit later down the road.
0: And what changed it? I mean, obviously, part of it was positioning because they got people on board with this idea of, no, 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 this is actually an antidote in a way uh, to what was already considered then a public health crisis.
5: Exactly. So two things, well, multiple things happened. But really, cigarettes had just, it was very clear that cigarettes were going to be a dying industry. Fewer people every year were smoking, 3% declines year over year. And everybody was starting to turn away from cigarettes. But of course, they're addicted. They uh, are addicted to the nicotine. So that's sort of what the company founders really zeroed in on. We can allow smokers to continue to have a nicotine fix, but it's not going to have the combustion that causes the tar in the lungs and is ultimately the cause of lung cancer. So they kind of positioned it almost as a more healthful product, as a a, a healthful alternative to cigarettes. And uh, that's really, it started catching on. Um, But the second thing was really, it's a very addictive product. Um, They invented something called a nicotine salt uh, vape liquid. And basically, they had chemists early on in their laboratories, and they devised this Ultra powerful nicotine liquid, and that for sure helped get a lot of people hooked onto their product.
1: Well, and I think what is so troubling is how did so many teenagers, right, those under age, get hooked on a product like Juul? Well,
5: this is the thorniest issue regarding Juul, Um, but the fact of the matter is, early on, Juul. Laid out a marketing campaign that was pretty much designed to attract kids. It was super edgy. It had uh, colorful graphics, really bold. They hired models. Um, it just made it look like a very cool product. They they marketed on Instagram, and sure enough, to much to nobody's surprise, high school students eventually and middle middle school students eventually started trying the product. And the combination of the marketing and the highly addictive nature of the product really allowed this product or facilitated this uh, facilitated the spread of this product across America and high schools and middle middle schools. Right. Um, so now you have millions of people addicted to
1: it. Well, the other element of your story that's so interesting is you say, like many other Silicon Valley startups, I think of something like Uber that just kind of came into the market, maybe ignored you know, regulations, this fast-moving mindset. That was very much a part of the jewel model, like just kind of get it out there. Because from what I understand in, in your reporting, along with Ellen Hewitt, is that there were folks within the company that were uncomfortable about kind of how fast they were ramping up and to who they were ramping up.
5: Yeah, exactly. They really adopted and embraced the model that is uh, Ask Ask forgiveness, not permission and that's we saw that with Uber when they flooded the streets with these on demand cab drivers, and then we saw it with bird scooters that 's why you trip over bird scooters everywhere on street corners, so they really they adopted that model of like let 's just get it out there as fast as possible. We need to really own this market as quickly as possible because it was rapidly becoming more competitive with the big cigarette companies getting in it. So they really did. They scaled up super quickly. They were hiring lots of new people. They were uh, producing the product at a really uh, fast rate. And yeah, that did make people inside the company uncomfortable. They felt like, wait a minute, Let's, let's slow down a little bit. Let's make sure our internal controls are adequate enough so we don't have any sort of problem down the road. But there was constantly a mindset of growth first and then let's figure it all out later, which is a traditional Silicon Valley Model, but when you have a product that has such uh, huge health implications, it's sort of that's where it got sticky.
0: Well, and Lauren, it feels like also mindful of the fact that regulators didn't really know what to make of this, lawmakers didn't know what to make of it, so they had this moment that they could seize that while those folks were figuring it all out, they were going to build a big business.
5: Yeah, this is the most interesting aspect of all of this is when e-cigarettes and Juul started really uh, unrolling their product. um, It was around 2015. And the FDA had been regulating cigarettes and tobacco products now for several years. But when they wrote the regulation, They didn't include e cigarettes as a quote unquote tobacco product. So here come these companies that are starting to sell these highly addictive nicotine products, and there's virtually no regulation from the FDA. So they had a golden opportunity. Juul and all these other e-cigarette companies, they had a golden opportunity to seize the market, to flood the market with as much as their product before regulators came in and kind of rein them in. So Juul definitely exploited that, and all the other e-cigarette companies did too. And that facilitated definitely the rapid wildfire spread of the Juul. That we've seen over the past few years.
1: That's Lauren Etter joining us from Los Angeles. This feature story, Jason, you and I talked about it a lot in the newsroom. I think what's interesting about this one is I think we all just kind of take for granted jewel in the marketplace. But this gets into the two Stanford you know, graduates who worked on this, created this, um, the troubles in kind of bringing it to market initially, but how they became really the major player in this market and how they did it by flying really under the radar of regulators.
0: Well, and now very much front of mind for regulators and very much front of mine, I feel like in the broader public conversation, this happened very quickly. It's a fast-moving story, mm-hmm. and this is really important context.
1: In full transparency, Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television, has campaigned and given money in support of a ban on flavored e-cigarettes and tobacco. So Jason, I think safe to say that increasingly we are seeing medical research tap into using the human body to figure out what ails it.
0: Yeah, I was struck with this story. You know, we've talked a lot about immunotherapy mm-hmm. when it comes to fighting cancer. Uh, that brings us to a story in the tech section about really harnessing the body's garbage disposal. I love the Wild. imagery here. It's technical, but even I understood it after reading so it a bit. Uh, Rebecca <laughs> Penty joins us from London. She's got the details. Mm-hmm. So, Rebecca, what are we talking about here?
3: So, for a long time, scientists have known about the body's own garbage disposal. This is at a molecular level. When, when the body realizes that there's proteins that are malfunctioning, that are bad proteins, or just simply proteins that it doesn't need anymore, it sends out these compounds that actually collect those proteins and break them down and either junk them or recycle them and create new ones. And so for years, for decades, scientists have been trying to figure out, could we actually use that, that um, system and harness it in a way that would allow us to go after diseases because keep in mind most diseases are really just clusters of um, of proteins that are clumped together and are misbehaving in a way and they need to be broken up and most traditional medicines really make them you know kind of put them on pause pause their growth in this new way of thinking, and this new technology, the drug companies are testing treatments that would go in and piggyback onto the body's own garbage disposal units and target those bad proteins and get rid of them. I feel like it makes so much sense, and I think they call them
1: degraders, right? So talk to us about what's going on in the medical world, who's working on it, uh, who's, who's doing the cutting-edge research, because um, it sounds like some big drug companies are also
3: getting involved. Yeah, that's right. It started out as an idea that came out of Yale University, and then it, it turned into sort of a fringe area of medical research. It was very difficult for scientists involved in the early stage to get funding, but Earlier in this past decade, what scientists started discovering is that some of the, the most successful drugs, so Revlimid for example, it's a, it's a multiple myeloma cancer drug, functioned by blocking um, the body's own garbage recycling unit, So, or process rather. So they discovered that these drugs work by blocking that process. Now scientists started to think, what if we could do the reverse? And what if we could harness that process? And so in around 2014, 2015 was when things really started to take off. And since then, all the big drug companies, as well as some smaller biotechs, so if you think of the big guys like Bayer, and Amgen, Novartis, they're all involved in testing these new treatments, targeting various cancers, Alzheimer's, you know, pick a disease, you name it, they're looking at it. Um, this, this could have broad, broad appeal. It's worth mentioning that this is still very early stage. Um, only a few of these drugs have hit human trials and a few more are going to hit human trials in the coming year, so it'll be a few years yet before we find out whether this treatment, this type of treatment is really effective and safe but there are high, high hopes. And
0: so, Rebecca, what was the breakthrough moment in terms of moving it from the fringe to the mainstream? I mean, obviously, the answer would seem to be there's some commercial appeal, that's why uh, these big drug companies are getting into it, but as you said, initially, when it was coming out of Yale or when the research was happening, there weren't a lot of takers and a lot of skepticism about whether this could even be a thing.
3: It It wasn't one moment, but it was a series of discoveries with regards to drugs that were already on the market, Mm. that they either found out they worked like Revlimid, Thalidomide, which is a predecessor drug to Revlimid, that they either worked by blocking the recycling process or they actually worked by using the recycling process you know, sometimes drugs, we don't actually know why they work or how they work, but they work. And then scientists go and they reverse engineer that and try to figure out how does this work. So in around 2014, 2015, 2016, they were discovering that a lot of the most popular drugs were working by tapping into this you know, garbage disposal system. And so scientists started doing more targeted work thinking, okay, what's the protein we want to go after to cure you know, prostate cancer? if we've got a patient who is not responding well to traditional hormone treatments, could we start going after these proteins, piggybacking onto the, right. the um, garbage recycling process? And that's what they're doing. So various biotechs are doing different things. Some are doing more kind of experimental work. Some are trying to just improve Existing drugs like the um, prostate cancer treatment.
0: And that's Rebecca Penty joining us from London. This was an interesting little story, I have to say, because we've talked a lot about immunotherapy, Mm -hmm. but this whole notion of the garbage disposal, it was a technical story in many ways and ultimately... Kind of simple.
1: Yeah, very simple. And what's interesting is we increasingly see in the medical community about using the body to combat illness, disease, and these protein degraders, they could be one of the most significant advances in drug making technology in decades. Everybody's all in. It may take some time for them to come out. They're still uh, in the early stages, but I think fascinating about the possibilities. So getting to a world with self-driving cars could mean a world where we save lives. Getting there, though, is probably going to require losing a few lives first. It's a predicament.
0: This story really struck me because mm-hmm. it is a very 2019 story in the sense of technology and ethics and That's our very humanity uh, all colliding in one story. Zach Meider is here with us. It's all about Tesla
6: and its efforts to create the ultimate self-driving car. What's going on? So a lot of companies are trying to build driverless cars. And the promise is that set aside all the other good things that might come with driverless uh, technology, it could has the potential to save a ton of lives. Something like 38,000 people die every year. It, just in the United States, more than a million globally. And most of those uh, fatalities are caused by human error of one kind or another. So if you can remove – somehow keep the cars but remove the human error, there's just massive life-saving potential.
1: Well, and that's the predicament, right? That in order to get to that point, unfortunately, we're going to see some accidents as people continue to test autopilots, correct? Because they need the data to get better.
6: Well, so Tesla is taking an approach that's totally different from everyone else in the autonomous industry. Almost everyone else is basically saying – we have to be really careful about safety. We're going to try to build an autonomous car that works autonomously before we really like start producing it in large quantities and selling it to people. And we, we have to sort of get it perfect or almost almost perfect before, because otherwise the, right. the, the concern is the public is going to react. They're going to freak out. They're going to ban these things. It could be a big problem.
1: And then there's Tesla.
6: <laughs> Tesla's taking the total opposite approach, which is saying- Listen, we don't have autonomous technology yet, but we have this stuff that's like pretty good. You have to oversee it. It might sometimes make mistakes, but we'll just tell, we'll just sell it. We'll put it in the cars, and we'll tell the uh, customers you have to oversee this thing at all times. You have to constantly supervise it. It only works on highways, basically, but it works pretty well on highways. You can, um, you, without touching a, a pedal or or the steering wheel, you can drive for. A hundred miles. You got in a car, correct? That's right. And what was it and, like? And,
1: yeah, walk us through that.
6: It's it's creepy, you know. It's a it's a creepy feeling. It's very different from cruise control because it's doing all this stuff without you, and you you get to see kind of what the car sees, right? So you can you you have a little video screen that shows you. You know, if you drive along and there's a bicyclist in front of you, it shows an icon of a bicyclist. It's recognizing a somebody on a bike, or it's recognizing a truck, or it's recognizing a car, and it's making decisions about how, what these other objects are going to do, where the road is, and it's it's driving. And so Tesla's approach, just so we totally
0: understand it, is this notion that. They think you need a certain amount of data that can only really be captured in real life situations. Like what is their
6: what's their approach here? Help me understand it. Their approach is uh, essentially they think that to get to a fully driverless car rather than kind of keep it in the lab and perfect it, and get it right. They're going to put something that needs human supervision into a car they can sell for money. Right. And get hundreds of thousands of them on the road so there's like more than uh, half a million of these cars out there today that you can use autopilot on and the theory is uh it's a little bit like the google search engine right which kind of gets smarter every time you search on it because it sees how well it did in giving you the right search result there's a tesla claims that they're doing a similar thing with their cars that they're they're actually collecting data from all these cars and they think that – they claim that that will allow their, their uh, software to improve faster than the competition because the competition um, – the other, the other companies using – developing autonomous vehicles are doing it mostly – you know, they've got 100 test cars, 600 test cars there. Tesla's got, you know, hundreds of thousands on the road.
1: I have to say one data point stood out for me, Zach. Tesla customers have logged more than 1.5 billion miles on autopilot, right? And they're often pushing the limits even though Tesla says, you know, you have to be aware. You have to be, you know, in control at all times. We know. We've seen the stories of people doing other things while driving their Tesla. But at the same time, Tesla takes that data, right, and they can continue to refine the software and then spit out upgrades, right, to these cars. I mean this is kind of a a constant loop that is going on.
6: Self-learning, yeah. yeah that that's the theory right but this is also a company that up until very recently you was,
1: sound skeptical
6: i uh, I think you know I think we have to be skeptical of all yeah. these companies and and try to kick the tires as it were about you know what they're claiming and it's it's uh it may just be a coincidence, but Tesla until recently was telling everyone that it was going to become super profitable by selling the you know by by building the first kind of mass market mm-hmm. electric car and selling those, it's building the, the first mass market electric car, the Model 3, and, but it's not profitable yet. And so now the focus is kind of in this new direction. We're going to get to autonomy first. We mm-hmm. need more time from investors more –
1: well, what about its safety record? What do we know about that? Because if this is this is what everybody's concerned about, and if Tesla's saying, "Hey, listen, we know the way to do it by throwing a ton of cars on the road," what is their safety record?
6: Right. So you would think that um, you you would think that uh, it would be relatively easy to tell because there's so many miles that they've already got under their belt, and Tesla has, of course, such good data about what all these cars are doing. It's constantly talking to all these cars. Um, but it's actually a mystery to outsiders exactly how mm. dangerous this technology is. Regulators have basically, up until now, not um, taken any action. Mm. They open in they open a defect investigation that closed without, you know, ordering a recall or forcing Tesla to make any changes. Um, but it's actually quite uh, hard to figure out how safe these cars are, and you know, the, the kind of um, positive case is that Tesla says, look, humans are always supervising these cars. So, you have all the safety of a human driver. It's just that the car is doing things to help you, mm-hmm. right? Almost like, a, almost like anti-lock brakes or something. It's, right. it's, it's just a safe, an additive, sa- additive safety feature. But um, the, the skeptical case says, when you take so much responsibility away from the driver, uh, they get lulled into a sense of complacency, and they get distracted. It's actually very difficult to pay attention to supervising a system that's working that appears to be working perfectly well on its own. Right. And so, and this is a problem that airlines that's have I had say, pilots. for a long time. Is autopilot on, on airplanes is so good that you know they sometimes just get distracted. The pilots. M- Zone out, yeah, and you mentioned regulators what's
0: the issue with regulators? Have they just not caught up essentially to to where the technology is? Can they not fully uh, essentially comprehend uh, where to go
6: next what What happens with them This is a very different issue than the ones that um, federal uh car regulators are used to mm-hmm. a, a more kind of straightforward problem for them is. You know, company makes tires. The company the the tires fail. People get in accidents. Something that you could kind of identify on a test track, right? a brakes don't work. The steering steering doesn't work. Something like that. That's a kind of straightforward problem that regulators are very well equipped to handle. This is is it's a little bit more like a, a an experimental pharmaceutical. There's potential life-saving opportunity, but it also might have deadly side effects and you have to kind of weigh those things. And it's very hard to know that on a test track. You really have to put it out in the real world to find out how it's going to react when another car does something weird.
1: I love that parallel that you make that, you know, we do have a model for this industry, for the self-driving vehicle industry, and that is the drug industry, right? Because they do go through various phases of testing these ultimately on people to see if it works and sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't
6: right and so there are people who are who are following the autonomous car industry who are saying we need to um, to equip regulators to essentially act like the FDA does right and have kind of a series of phased tests that are overseen by somebody outside the company.
1: The Tesla story, the cover story, one of the feature stories in the magazine as well, written by Zach Meider. Uh, This story, he drove around in a Tesla Model 3. He gave us his first hand experience of what it's like. But as we talked with Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, what's great about this story is it really does look at the ethical dilemma. We've talked about like autopilots having to make a choice between maybe somebody with a baby carriage versus somebody walking a dog. But this takes it even deeper. How willing are we as a society um, going to be comfortable with autopilot? We want it, but are we going to be comfortable with losing some lives along the way to get to that end?
0: And there is, Carol, a really strong connection between this story and the jewel story all around the regulatory framework, the ethos of Silicon Valley in a lot of ways, and some big questions that I think we're all wrestling with in terms of the role of big tech in our lives.
1: This story was among the most read on the Bloomberg Terminal when it came out. We talked about it so much on our daily radio program, and it was looking at what the next U.S. recession might be like, and it'll probably be like no other.
0: Right. We always talk about this time will be different. Mm-hmm. It's beginning to feel like it actually may be true when it comes to the U.S. economy. Christina Lindblad, who oversees the economic coverage in the magazine, here with us about this story. So give us the potential shape of a recession if and when it ever comes?
7: Well, they're usually, from history, we know that they're triggered by a spike in inflation followed by a spike in interest rates as the Fed intervenes. And then that causes an unwinding of, you know, either economic, um, you know, excesses or financial excesses. But this time, inflation is low, the Fed is cutting, and we don't really see any bubbles. You know, stock prices don't really seem to be, you know, out of... Out of um, Sink, considering that, that rates are still low. So what is going on? Why is there so much talk about recession? And basically, as we joked around this week, we we're like, it's geopolitics, stupid. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's coming. It's sort of an external shock. That we are, that's kind of self-induced because we, we started this trade war. But it's causing so much uncertainty that businesses are, are not investing, are not spending in, in creating new capacity because they're afraid that their supply chains are going to start unwinding.
1: And lower interest rates by the Federal Reserve. I mean, they're already low you know, as we as we sit right now, but even lowering them, that's not going to necessarily give businesses the confidence, right, Christina, to go out and spend. No, so no, but it doesn't
7: change. I mean, it doesn't change the outlook. I yeah. mean, it may weaken the dollar, which, you know, that would be helpful, but it, it doesn't materially change. You know, it's basically, you know, what we call the fog of the trade war. Right.
0: Well, and we talk so much about the strength of the consumer amid all of this, Mm -hmm. and there is this notion that at some point if businesses do curtail spending, they curtail hiring, people start to get a little bit more worried about their jobs or promotions or bonuses or raises – but we don't see any signs of that yet. How is the consumer looking amid all this?
7: The consumer is feeling pretty good because the consumer was, um, you know, kind of late to harvest the fruits of this ten-year um, expansion. You know that we've been in companies and, other, and investors felt it first. So wage growth has been ticking up in in the you know in, in the recent year, you know, and hiring, you know, even though there's been a little bit of wobbles, it's still pretty, you know, on a high sustained pace. So we don't see yet that the consumer has lost their nerve. But that really is going to be one of the things that people are going to be looking at the next year. they're going to be looking at hiring and how companies, because the the feeling is that at some point, the trade war will, may cause companies to start, you know, really um, dialing back on hiring.
1: Right, right. If they start to... look for ways to cut costs. Right. right?
7: They either or let start
1: to let people go and then it just kind of all snowballs from there. I mean the odds of a recession, I mean I feel like we keep seeing different polls of, you know, maybe a little bit higher than they were a year ago, maybe a little bit lower. I mean kind
7: of go back and forth a little bit. Actually Bloomberg economics said they were higher than the beginning of the year, but actually lower than during the summer. Mm. So people are looking at a 12-month horizon and they're seeing, you know, Bloomberg Economics, for example, says 25 percent, less than 25 percent chance of a recession. I think the highest you see, 40 percent. The big one big wild card is whether Trump would go ahead and levy um, tariffs on the remainder of Chinese um imports that have not been tariffed yet. Some people say that if that happens, it's inevitable.
1: Well, and we've certainly heard from Fed Chief Jay Powell, right, who has talked about they seem to still be optimistic about the outlook and say that there's no reason why this expansion can't continue except for these kind of macro factors. And they often point to trade at this point.
7: Right. At the same time, though, most people expect that they will cut again, Yeah. you know, at the, at the meeting at the end of October.
0: And that's Christina Lindblad. She oversees all of our economics coverage at Bloomberg Business Week. Carol, always love getting her perspective. It's global and also has a lot of context about what's happened before and what actually, I know we say this all the time, may be different this time.
1: Right, and this story really digs into what might cause the next U.S. recession. It's been a long time in coming. We keep talking about it and yet it hasn't happened. The expansion continues. What's interesting about this story is that it might be different this time around in terms of what causes a recession here in the United States. It's been the talk of the global IPO circuit for years, the Saudi Aramco IPO. And after several false starts, Jason, it seems to be finally, finally happening. Well, this
0: one is such a collision of politics, economics, financial markets, Mm -hmm. investment banking, and, of course, the global energy market. Will Kennedy joins us from London with the latest. So, Will, remind us where we are now and a little bit about where we've been.
8: So this was first suggested by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia back in uh, 2016 and he stunned the world actually when he announced it by saying that this company Saudi Aramco, uh, which had been part of the Saudi state for decades, he was going to uh, do an IPO and raise billions of dollars and uh, bring it to uh, global scrutiny and open up its finances then it went away for a while uh, they had been talking about a listing in London or New York but investors bought really at the valuation the crown prince had put on the company of two trillion dollars which is as you know double what either the Microsoft or Apple currently the world's two largest companies are worth um, all of a sudden it's come back uh, But it's come back in a slightly different form. It's going to be listed in Riyadh only. Uh, They're going to sell 1% or 2% of the company. And it seems that they've got the backing of some of Saudi Saudi Arabia's richest people, richest families. And at the moment, they think they can get that $2 trillion valuation.
1: Well, that's what I think is also interesting. First of all, in terms of the listing, uh, well, it's not like it's New York, it's not London, it's not Hong Kong. They're doing it on the Saudi exchange. And I do feel like even though it's going public, the Saudi government will still have a lot of oversight here.
8: That's exactly right. I mean, the the rules on... Uh transparency are not quite the same as they would have been in New York for example I'll give you one example of that in New York SEC regulations mean you have to be very precise on your oil reserves as an oil company how much is ready to drill now how much might be ready to drill in the near future and how much is still pretty speculative they won't have to do that for example listing in Riyadh Um, they will be able to Uh, encourage Saudi banks to lend to potential investors both large and small and the Saudi government actually has a history of when there's an IPO in Riyadh it tends to encourage some intervention in the market to ensure that the price stays buoyant so it's not quite like an IPO would have been in New York or London Um, but it's still a very very big exercise and they will be marketing the uh, equity outside uh, Riyadh to international investors who want to come in through that mechanism. There'll be a 144A mechanism in New York, for example. So it will be there for international investors, but it's not the same as a New York listing, Cal.
0: Well, and when you go back and think about where the world was in 2016, what the world thought of Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia's place uh, in the global economy and the Global political scene well that's changed pretty dramatically, not just for Saudi Arabia but specifically for aramco it was targeted by some Iranian uh, made strikes uh, missile strikes not too long ago. Uh, how has that changed the perception of this deal
8: Yes. This is a world-class oil company, and operationally, it's probably on a par with Exxon or Shell. But it operates, Jason, in a wholly different political situation, and we see that in several ways. This attack from uh, a drone strike, people aren't sure exactly what it was, a missile strike showed the very vulnerability of the Saudi energy system and the fact that it's in the world's most dangerous neighborhood, and that's going to presumably encourage investors to perhaps apply some kind of discount. And then you've got the political risk associated with Saudi Arabia that was illustrated uh, by the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. So investors are going to have to take those things into account when they assess the IPO, for, for sure.
1: I do also find it interesting, and you, I think, mentioned this or referenced this earlier, that some of those are some of the investors who were once under house arrest by MBS, right, who are, you know, kept up in that hotel, a crackdown on corruption in 2017. They are now being asked to be potentially anchor investors. It's just kind of interesting to see how it all works. Friend and foe, it feels like, at the same time in terms of relationships in uh, Saudi Arabia. I
8: mean, from... From the crown prince's point of view, he probably thinks that's a legitimate way to go, that a lot of these families, a lot of these people had managed to uh, construct fortunes on the back of perhaps favorable contracts with the Saudi state and that it's legitimate to ask them to take part in his program of economic reform. But perhaps one way of looking at the deal as it's structured at the moment is it will move a very large sum of money from the pockets of private Saudi investors, whether those are big uh, millionaire and billionaire families or indeed smaller individuals who will be asked to subscribe in a big retail offer from private pockets in Saudi Arabia into the coffers of the sovereign wealth fund. Um, And it's a way of financing the prince's uh, economic ambitions, this public investment fund he has to both drive economic change inside Saudi Arabia and invest in companies outside Uh, Saudi Arabia.
0: Well, and Will, I'm so glad you mentioned the, I believe it's called the PIF, the public investment fund, which obviously will stand to gain huge amounts. And by virtue of that, you've got global investors and private equity and hedge funds and other types of funds just licking their chops at the prospect of this huge new pool of money, not to mention the investment bankers who uh, are signed up to work on this deal. So it has financial ramifications far beyond the kingdom.
8: It does. I mean, it's worth uh, dwelling on the banks for a minute, I think, Jason. There are more than 25 banks uh, around the world uh, mandated on on this deal. It includes all the giants of Wall Street, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley. Um, And they will make good money outside uh, from this deal if and when it goes ahead. But also, as you say, it sort of kicks off more transactions because that capital will then go through the PIF, which will invest it um, in places outside Saudi Arabia in uh, private equity funds. So there's a lot of transactions here from people, for people to make money from. And don't forget, this is just one side of the deal. There was a deal last year, which isn't yet completed, where Aramco would buy from the PIF a 70% stake in the Saudi Arabia's right. chemical giant, SABIC. Um, And that money is also going to PIF. So when you take both deals together, you may be looking at something in the region of $100 billion.
1: That's Will Kennedy. We caught up with him uh, in London, Jason, and this Aramco IPO, it's been the talk of the global IPO circuit for years, finally seems to be happening. But lots of questions about the valuation, uh, it coming to market when the price of oil isn't as high as it's been in the past. And I do think it's also interesting in terms of the exchange. It's not rolling out in London and New York. It's rolling out in Saudi Arabia.
0: Well, and there are also all of these questions for investment bankers, for politicians, for investors on the other side of this who are waiting to get their hands on the proceeds of that IPO,
1: For years, Oracle has been making promises about its potential footprint in the cloud. And yet, Jason, it has not quite happened yet.
0: Well, and so much drama going on there in the C-suite, mm-hmm. as well as just around this marketplace, the, a different sort of C, the cloud, the as cloud. you say. Nico Grant joins us from San Francisco with that story. So what are Oracle's ambitions and how are they playing out at this moment in the cloud?
9: So first, I want to unpack a little bit what the cloud is and what we mean by the cloud here. So there are three parts to cloud computing. One is where Amazon and Microsoft dominate. And this is renting computing and storage from a network of server farms around the world. And this is the market that Oracle has struggled the most with. And then you have, you know, right above that, sitting on top, Coding languages, databases, um, and other tools that organizations use. And then at the very top of, of that cloud pyramid, you have applications. Think of these like your smartphone apps, you know, tools that can help a business, for instance, manage its customers or manage its human resources, manage its accounting. Oracle has, for a long time, touted its ability to play in all three of these markets. The company started out being very strong in databases, and then over time it uh, developed and acquired many applications. But this bottom layer, where Amazon has, you know, been the pioneer and really shown what's possible, uh, Oracle has struggled. And right now, what we see is the company deciding to de-emphasize um, this part of the market, basically using its cloud infrastructure. Which is the name of the bottom layer, in order to be, you know, the hosting site for the rest of the tools that they actually think um, they can sell to customers and make a mark in the in the industry.
1: So. Tell us what happened here, because they certainly put a lot of efforts, a lot of money. They kind of put this whole cloud group separate from the rest of the company. It was kind of a, kind of a hip place to be in terms of working. Uh, they got engineers from a lot of the other Silicon Valley companies. So what went wrong?
9: So Oracle basically built, you know, a colony within itself, and it was uh, based up in Seattle. It still is up there. Uh, It's led by a man named Don Johnson, no relation to Melanie Griffith's ex husband. Um, And the idea was to find a lot of people from the cloud diaspora up in Seattle, people who had helped build the Amazon Web Services Cloud, helped build Microsoft Azure, um, and get them to really make Oracle competitive in this market. And so starting in 2014, it began a process of hiring lots of people, and it ended up being thousands of people. Um, In terms of budget, you know, there uh, was a lot of flexibility for them to pay staffers a lot of money. Mid-level uh, product managers were offered 750,000. Um, engineers who were senior with uh, vice president titles were were sometimes paid more than $5 million in total compensation. This is all from a company that by Silicon Valley standards is thought of as thrifty. Um, Oracle generally doesn't give raises to employees from year to year. Uh, the company also never tops any any lists in terms of compensation in the Valley, like, you know, Google and Facebook and other companies we can think of. And so they gave these engineers, um, lots of resources. They gave them these beautiful offices up in Seattle, um, with, you know, lots of whimsy that you don't find at other Oracle offices, uh, you know, massive chess sets, for instance, in game rooms and pool tables and Dr. Who telephone booths. And, you know, you know, the prompt was make us a cloud that is competitive and also make us a cloud that you know works best for oracle applications and oracle databases and you know what we saw is that group grew to be thousands of people um, larry ellison the co-founder and chairman of oracle placed so much trust in don johnson that he actually decided to reorganize oracle and take thousands of staff members away from Thomas Kurian, who had been seen as his technological heir. Uh, his last job at Oracle was being president of the product organization, the only president that the company had at the time. And he you know, gave those cloud engineers to Don Johnson and this group in order to expand it well, further.
0: And that's Nico Grant joining us from San Francisco. I really love his reporting about Oracle. It's so in-depth. And this story really 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 captures a lot of what was going on at the company in this ambitious effort to really make a dent, as it were, in the cloud business. I
1: also love that Nico went into the three layers of the cloud. If you really don't understand what's going on, he laid it out so clearly. So I think it's an important read, a must read. So time for a check on pursuits. Lots of stories to get us all ready for the colder weather and for skiing.
0: It's ski season. That's very exciting. We caught up with the CEO of Vail Resorts, actually, last week when we were out in Colorado. Here with us in New York City is Chris Rouser, And one of the things I guess we may be doing is ice polo? Yeah, you
2: may be watching some polo on the ice. Uh, We were closing this. Every year we do a snow special, so skiing, snowboarding, um, you know, winter camping. And as we were closing it, it was 80 degrees in New York City. We were like, this feels crazy. Um, But it's snowing out west and it's time for us to think about the winter. And one of the best, most crazy events uh, during the winter around the world is the annual snow polo in St. Moritz. And it happens after Davos. uh, And so a lot of people just hop in their private jets and go there. And it's sponsored by NetJets and Maserati and some other uh, really luxury companies. And it's just a three-day weekend. It's a polo tournament. They clear off the ice and they play polo all weekend. And it's champagne and fur and parties and bling, the whole thing.
1: It sounds so decadent.
2: It's it's really <laughs> over the top. It's the first time, and we cover luxury, and I had not heard of what, is, what they call a caviar bump, which is when they spoon caviar directly onto your fist right. for, you to, for you to eat it that way. Uh, which, you know, caviar on flesh is a thing, but I had it's not— It's
1: like an upscale frat party. It's like
2: you can go, you can get beers and Bratwurst, or you can have somebody, pu- you know, put some caviar right, right. in your hand. Well, I'm, and that is
0: something that jumped out at me is that this isn't—even though you have to get to San Maritz to do it, like they—it's not just for the— ultra decadent, wealthy, like you can actually go as a, like a regular.
2: Yeah. So it's, you know, it's one of the um, spots on sort of the global ultra high net worth calendar. But what they're trying to do is also make it accessible to anybody. So you can actually go. And if you're there, uh, you're a local, you live nearby, you can go for free, actually. Although tickets in the Grand Sands can cost up to almost 700 Swiss francs. Um, but yeah, yeah, you can go get a beer and just sort of watch this crazy sport of kings.
1: It brings in a lot of money to the area, too, right?
2: Yeah, it brings in like 12 million francs and it, um, you know, it. it they get a lot of money from sponsorships uh, and they, you know, once they stop doing it one year, they immediately start planning for the next year.
0: Well, and the other thing that struck me is just the mechanics and the logistics of how to put on mm-hmm. a polo match on a frozen lake is, is what they're doing, right?
2: Yeah. So it's about 3,000 tons of stuff, of tents, of grandstands and stuff on the ice. The ice is about 26 inches thick, so it's totally fine. And a polo uh, – the polo pitch is actually smaller than a normal pitch, so you can get closer to the games. They call them chuckas, And I was like – the, po- the horses must slip, right? Like, yeah, that must yeah, How be the main. work? Uh, and actually they don't. They, they give them special hooves that have studs in them uh, and braces to protect them from injury. Uh, but the, the, you know, the only sort of injuries or stops they actually have is usually from people getting hit by mallets, which is actually kind of something that can happen in any... That's a standard in polo, polo right. injury. Yeah, right, a standard hazard of polo.
1: But it's a big business event. Like I think about the sponsors that get involved. I think you guys talk about Maserati, right? They organize kind of some driving yeah. things around the so event. So
2: Maserati will do like... Like a snow driving test drives, and they say they sell, they they do about twelve, they do about a dozen deals every time they do this. So they're selling cars. People are selling clothes, and you know it's for uh, net jets. They do about twenty flights in just that weekend. That's like a flight every couple, private yeah. flight every couple hours, right? Amazing. And
1: it's and, and in town there's a bunch of festivities too, right? Some like black tie events, I mean, yes. a little more posh.
2: There's a club there called Dracula's <laughs> Ghost Riders Club where it you has so a, want to a, go a to disco ball like that. shaped like a head of garlic, which now I have to go. Yeah, right. <laughs> <Second> <laughs> um, yeah, they have parties all weekend
0: long. All, all right. right. So if you're not doing that, you're probably thinking about skiing, and everybody's always looking for the next place. Uh, Zermatt is so like. 2018. Yeah, I, mean, I no, guess. Uh, so what's the new so place? So, last year. so
2: there is this place that's been in development since about 20, 2007 called Andermatt, which is it was actually quite an old resort, um, but it kind of fell out of use uh, by most people in the 80s, and it used to be have a military base, and then the military base closed in the 90s, and so it kind of became very sleepy, and then this Egyptian billionaire uh, named Sami Sawiris actually. looked at the the place and was like, you know what? I could develop this. This has all the bones of an amazing resort. So he uh, developed a hotel, the Hotel Chedi. He built a golf course and actually he got a special dispensation to allow uh, foreigners to buy second homes there, which you can't actually really do in Switzerland. Um, And so basically over the past few years it's become more and more of an international destination. And of course it's a cute old Swiss town. So it's got all the charm that you want of a kind of like Chamonix, that kind of thing. But It's actually kind of uh, untouched. And now they're replacing all the old lifts with gondolas and stuff. And it's really an amazing place. And it's big. Yeah, it's really big, and it, 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 they're actually connecting more right. mountains uh, with uh, with gondolas and stuff, so you can actually connect to other resorts too.
0: Yeah, because it says the interconnected sea, ski area ultimately 180 kilometers, 112 miles of slopes and 33 lifts. And just by way of comparison, that's two more lifts than Vale. Yeah,
1: exactly. Lot. Don't tell Vale. And <laughs> some pretty cool hotels and places to stay.
2: Yeah, so there's the Chedi, which is uh, which is actually a small chain, and it's quite big and glamorous and new. But then there's some old ones like the Hotel Son, which uh, are have been around for a while. And there, even though the Chetty is kind of the big new thing, all the hotels are pretty sight because a lot more people are coming now.
0: Well, and we should point out, not all the locals are thrilled, it sounds like, because this was kind of one of those throwback places well-hidden sort of secret mm-hmm. gem uh, for the locals and right? people who knew it. And now it's solid commercial. Yeah, that's the story of a lot of these ski
2: resorts, right? Like uh, Whistler now, everyone's worried sure. it's going it's going corporate. You know, they're all charming, they're all independent and then as they get bigger, it's it's good for a lot of the businesses, but then it does lose some of the character. All
1: right, so um, speaking of characters, <laughs> the puffer coat. <laughs> yes. Kind of getting uh, a bit of a makeover, right? I think of puffer coats and you just feel like the Michelin, Michelin man, right? Yeah, like, you just like people People in New down. York City,
0: like, bouncing <laughs> off of each other during yes. the wintertime. But, but you... Make it fancy.
1: You guys have some nice versions.
2: So the the question when it gets to winter in style that we get asked the most is, like, what is a cute puffer coat, which is like kind <laughs> of an oxymoron. And also – The that, newsroom goes
1: silent. Right.
2: Well, one that doesn't look – this like a Canada goose. You know, they kind right. of all look the same. They're gray, they're blue, they're black, and they have that same look. So we went out and tried to find uh, some other puffer coats that don't look the same and that are sort of trim and uh, tailored. So we found a few, and I brought some in case you guys want to try. Please, show us. And we're
1: going to try and describe uh-huh. them for radio. Yes. And, and for those folks on radio, please go to Bloomberg.com or buy the magazine. Check it out so you can really see the pictures.
2: So so one of my favorites is by this brand called Perfect Moment, and it's $490, and it's got this like herringbone, red and blue and white It's like digital. Pattern. I'm
1: trying this on. Yeah. It's like digital herringbone. It's
0: cute. It's so cool.
2: um, It's very
1: short,
0: though. I
2: noticed it's short, that in, yeah. the,
0: in the picture, so
2: well, it's that's almost that's because
1: you, like... you got jeans on, so you will If you're going to
2: yeah. ski, you wear ski pants with the bib, right. you yes. know, the ones yeah. that go up the top. And then one of my it's favorite it's new fluffy. brands yes. is called Aztec Mountain. They actually have- I like this one. The designer from uh, Mugler is also, which is a very fun- fancy fashion brand they also have that's a jason um, kind of coat yeah this yeah. is this is are
1: these dark. unisex or are these like is this the one you're
2: wearing the perfect moment one is is for women okay. and then jason they have for men and women um i like this oh look at yeah, that little, it's yoga, got little, little um, yoga hands yeah. little elastics that cover your um that cover your hands and so then, jason's
1: is all blue and that's 750 dollars yeah, mine jason's is about 500 is like a,
2: technical like a puffer but like more hardcore and yeah and that's called the nuke suit and that's uh this is on brand it's totally on brand for you and then I have one call, from a brand called Mammut, which is eight hundred dollars, and it is the blingiest, goldest thing. Wow. You're gonna put it on? I'm gonna put it on. Oh
1: my god, it's going over. All right, for everybody on radio, Chris is putting oh it over. Wow.
2: <laughs> okay. Oh so my god. So it's not. We're not it's gonna lose everyone. <laughs> yeah, but it's definitely um,
1: looks good. Yeah,
2: and it's so warm. The second you put it on, you're like, this is warm, and it's it, it has kind of like a solar panel on the too. Side. Yeah.
1: That's Chris Rouser, the editor of Pursuits, and so much in this magazine, and Jason, what I love about it is there are some really great deep dives. You and I talked a lot about Jewel, finding out how the company was created, uh, its process, hard to find investors initially on, um, but it was a great deep dive. It's what the magazine is known for, and I feel like the story with Tesla, too, it took us in another direction.
0: Well, and there's a lot of connective tissue between those two stories, and mm-hmm. we have talked a lot about that with the editor of Businessweek, Joel Weber, and others here in the newsroom, because we do seem to be at this moment where we're asking a lot of questions about what big tech has wrought, what our responsibility is just as people and mm-hmm. as investors and as human beings. You know where this all goes and what the trade-offs are as we really embrace these different advances.
1: And speaking of questions, I mean, there's questions about are we headed for a U.S. recession, and if so, what will ultimately cause it, and what can maybe the U.S. central bank do to help us along the way to maybe stay away from it or get us through it. Uh, the other thing in terms of questions, Syria, right, and the change in terms of U.S. policy, the Turkey and I think, you know, just add it to the list of macro concerns that are out there.
0: be keeping an eye on all of that. And that's going to wrap up the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Carol Masser. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Business Week radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time.
0: And if you can't catch us live, get our daily podcast for the ride home. Check that out at Bloomberg.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And
1: of course, you can get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands. Now you know you want to see pictures of those puffer coats.
0: Right. You can see them in the magazine, but you'll have to go to Twitter to check us out modeling those puffer coats. I'm at Jason Kelly News and she's at Carol Masser. And we'll be back right here next week at the same time.
1: This is Bloomberg.